Luke chapter 15, we'll be reading from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Good job, man. I'm sorry. That's good. All right. Um, Before we get to that, I do, uh, and what I was so anxious to talk about, um, before we get into the message today, is um, to talk to you about the nursery sign-up now. Listen, I need some people to sign up for nursery, all right? And um, I think we've been trying to do a sign-up for nursery for about three weeks or so, and uh, we have woefully, woefully fallen short of the glory of God on signing up for, these, uh, for the nursery. We need more people uh, to watch babies. Now, listen, the great thing about it is you don't have to teach. There's no public speaking. There's no... Um, there's nothing, you got to change diapers, which, yes, that stinks every now and then. But um, it's a really great thing, and it's very helpful. And our vision for our church is really to have nursery for two services, not for one. So we're, we're trying to move to a place to where we've got enough nursery workers to, have, to separate the babies. Because, listen, we have a lot of new babies. Everybody say a lot. There, it's a blessing. Isn't that great? But we got to take care of these babies. And so we need people to sign up today for that. Now, I'm your pastor. I'm your loving, caring pastor. I'm also your spiritual coach. And I'm telling you, we've got to get on our toes on that deal. Vision for our children's ministry in the long run. What we're ultimately trying to do is not only provide two services of nursery, but two services of children's ministry. So we all got to roll up our sleeves and work together and serve together so that we can advance the message and, um, and really uh, reach people and, and restore people uh, to God and in Christ. That brings me to uh, this series of messages I want to do for three weeks called The Prodigal. And I want to look at Luke 15. I want to look at the three famous parables of Jesus. You just heard read, which I almost totally interrupted, um, the reading of the lost sheep. Next week we'll look at the lost co- coin. And then after that we'll look at the parable of the lost son, which is the climax and the full, um, full expression of, of what Jesus is trying to communicate. The ultimate thing with these parables, as you can see from the lost sheep, the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one lost sheep, and he, and he finds it, he comes back and he rejoices. Um, obviously, the point is the great, the extravagant grace and love of God to find lost sheep and to save them um, from destruction and to heal people. This is Jesus' great mission. And if you're confused on what the mission of Jesus is, let me tell you what it is based on these parables that we'll be looking at. The mission of Jesus is to spend everything 
for the joy of restoring human beings to God. That's what we're evaluating. The mission of Jesus is to spend everything for the joy of restoring human beings to God. These three parables that we'll be looking at on the love of God and the grace of God and seeking people who are far from Him, um, which are beautiful parables, they are flanked in the context of the Gospel of Luke by two passages I want to bring to your awareness. The first is Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. It says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Pharisees are always grumbling, complaining, always have problems. I'm not saying that if you are complaining and grumbling, you're a Pharisee. There are lots of complainers and grumblers who are not Pharisees. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Thank you, that one guy listened to me. Thank you. That was encouraging. Verse 31, but I am saying that you cannot be a Pharisee and not be a complainer. All right? It just goes with the territory. Verse 31, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The mission of Jesus is to spend everything for the joy of restoring human beings to God. On the other side of Luke 15 is this great passage, Luke 19 and verse 10. Luke quotes Jesus as saying, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke is very interested in Theophilus knowing That Jesus' mission, therefore the mission of the church, is to seek and to save the lost and to spend everything in doing it. Now that's the teaching material. That's what you hear didactically. But what we have in Luke 15 is three stories which show us the picture. It gives us a picture of the mission of Jesus. And pictures and stories inspire us. And they aspire us to action and to change and to changing the way we think about things. But the context, more narrowly, here in Luke 15, is the Pharisees. And make no mistake about it that the point of Luke 15 is that the ultimate enemy to the mission of Jesus are Pharisees. If I could put it practically, the ultimate problem that can happen to the mission of Jesus is legalism. Look at verse 1. See Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. Imagine that, that people are drawing to Jesus. They're drawn to him. They want to be with him. They can see that he has a concern for them. They can see that he had something to say to them. Tax collectors are... Horrible people. Nobody likes, likes tax collectors. You and I don't like tax collectors. Can I get an amen? This is the IRS who targets conservative groups. Right? They do bad things, tax collectors. Nobody likes them in our day, and nobody liked them in their day. But Jesus is talking to them. He's laughing with them. He's, he's having a relationship. He's high-fiving them. He's, he's hanging out with them. He's eating dinner with them. Pharisees are like, what is this man doing? Talking with the IRS. 
then it has this phrase, sinners. Everybody say sinners. Ooh, sinners. Luke put that there on purpose. Now, tax collectors were sinners too, but Luke is saying, you know, the really bad people. I mean, like, like when Luke says sinners, he's kind of winking, going, you know, the really bad people. The really unusually detestable people to religious people. They're coming to Jesus. They're attracted to Jesus. Think about what you would think of if you think about unusually bad people in society. What label would you give that group? Tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is welcoming them. Jesus is hanging with them. He's high-fiving them. He's laughing with them. He's having conversations with them. I was watching a sport, sporting event, which I think I, we, like, stopped watching sporting events in my home when the OKC Thunder lost in the NBA playoffs, right? It was, like, the last sporting event we've watched recently. But anyways, but, you know, I'm watching the sporting events. I've got my little girls with me. I've got the A-team right there, and we're, we're all sitting in front of the TV, and we're watching, you know what I mean? And the commercials that come on during these sporting events are driving me nuts. Can I get an amen from any of the parents? I mean, you sit there with your children, and you're like, do these people not know that there are little children here? And I always look at those commercials, and you know what I say, those unusually bad people. Oh, wicked, evil culture. And I become a preacher. You know, I get red-faced, and I'm like, repent, you brood of vipers. Ah, but Jesus... Jesus. <laughs> Jesus' whole mission is to spend everything in restoring human beings to God, and he's going to do it in love. He's hanging out with the people that religious people go, what in the world is he doing having dinner with these people? Legalistic people, church people, Pharisees get so upset at Jesus that at one point in time they call him a glutton and a drunkard, which must mean that he was at their parties. That's why verse 2 happens. Luke 15, verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man, this man. They don't call it, they don't say Jesus of Nazareth. They don't say, they don't say, you know, oh, Rabbi Jesus. They don't, they don't give him even the respect of a title. They don't call him a pastor or reverend or anything. They just say, this man. Have you ever been around church people like that? You don't have to raise your hand. You might be sitting next to him. No, I'm joking. Everybody here is cool. Everybody here is cool. This man. And they grumble. I like the way Luke talks, you know. Luke, Luke and later on in the book of Acts, he wrote the book of Acts as well. And when, when Stephen is being uh, stoned for the message that Jesus and not religion is the way to God, and the Pharisees, he says, gnash their teeth. That's what Pharisees do. They grumble. They gnash their teeth. Make a note of this. Religion bites every time. Religion bites Religion is so focused on people being condemned to hell that they miss the mission of Jesus to restore human beings to God. 
verse 3. Luke 15, verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. Even with the Pharisees, Jesus most of the time is gracious. Most of the time. You can read Matthew 23 for an exception to that, but... Here, he's just going to tell them a story. Let me tell you boys a story. It's interesting, and you've got to make a note of this. It's very important for this whole series to understand that Jesus is telling the parable to the Pharisees. See, he's talking to them. He's talking to religious people when he outlines these parables. He's saying, I want to talk to you folk. I want to tell you stories, you Pharisees. I want to talk to you. Love that. The parable, of course, has been described as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. doesn't work all the time in all the parables, but here, that is a great description of what a parable is. It's a story. This parable, the parable of the lost sheep that he's going to tell from verses 4 through 7, is a parable that describes both the message and the mission of Jesus in a pictorial form. It is the message of the Christian gospel. You say, well, what is the Christian gospel? This parable gives us a picture of what the Christian message or gospel is. And the first thing that this parable, a famous parable of the lost sheep, out of 100, one goes missing, shepherd goes and finds it, it tells us three things that outline perfectly what the Christian gospel is. And if you're wondering, what is Christianity? Is it a religion? Is it a denomination? Is it a way of dressing? Is it a way of eating? Is it a way of, is it, is it an ethnic thing? What, what is Christianity? Is it a social movement? Is it a political movement? No, it's none of those things. Christian message and gospel is number one about mankind's helpless condition. Look at the parable, Luke 15, verse 4. It says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? I love the fact that Jesus starts talking about a shepherd and sheep Because even though he's talking to the Pharisees, they have no way to relate to that kind of lifestyle. The Pharisees and the scribes are scholars. They've been to seminary. They know know Hebrew and and, and Greek. And and, and they know they're they're Bible professors. They're, they're, They're pastors and lay people who are more urbanized. And Jesus goes, let me tell you guys a story, which you can't relate to. Sheep and a shepherd. But see, the crowds can relate to it. So in one way, he's talking to the, to the Pharisees. In another way, because of the story he decides to use, he's talking and encouraging the crowds. He's confronting religion, but he's encouraging the crowds. I love that. But here it is. What you have here is the Christian message and the angle of Christianity. Number one is that mankind is helplessly lost. Mankind, all human beings, no matter what race, no matter what group, no matter what tribe or jungle you come from, you are represented by this one lost little lamb. And when we begin to kind of do research on the background of this, how does how do sheep go lost? And there's several reasons for people and sheep 
going lost? Let me give them to you now. Number one, somebody or a lamb can go lost because of wild animals. You know this. You got your, you're a shepherd. You got a, got a group of sheep. Taking them out. They're grazing. They're eating. Having their meals. And in comes a wolf. Right? And the wolf is real quiet. And the wolf makes itself smell like the sheep. And the shepherd has no idea that the wolf comes in. Right? And the wolf weaves in and out like that. And comes and takes one of the sheep. This is the story of how some people go far from God. Many people in our culture have no memory of church or God or Bible or... Many people in our culture come from broken families. And many people have been deeply hurt or abused by wild animals. Some people leave the church because of the church. Sometimes there's wild wolves in the church that drive people away from it. And so not only do people leave the church because of wild animals within the church, but they stray far from God. The problem with this kind of abuse or hurt or harm that's done to people is that we as human beings don't have the natural innate resources to cope with it correctly or with balance. Usually without God and without Christ, when we get abused, we overreact in one way or the other, and we totally cannot compensate rightly or balancedly with the problem that's happened to us. And so we give in to our own human condition of sin, which we were born with. This describes many people in our society have been taken and before you know it, once a wild animal takes that person or, or once somebody's been abused, they, they get led down into ditches and into bondage and into darkness that they never thought could possibly happen. And they are helpless to help themselves. There is no way that they can escape in and of themselves. The only way is if a Savior comes and finds them. People who have been abused and who have been also born into sin have no way of finding God on their own. God must find them. So sometimes that's what happens. A sheep, wild animal comes in. Other ways that sheep were lost were sometimes they got trapped or they got stuck or they ran up against the wall. Now, I've done a lot of sheep research. I'm like an expert on sheep, right? And, and, and... That's kind of a joke. I'm really not. But I know enough to preach, okay? But sheep, if they, if they get caught, right, or if they hit a wall, sheep don't have a reverse. This is something about the animal. If, if it hits a wall and it's like, bang, bang, it like just keeps hitting the wall. It cannot back up. It's got no reverse, right, um, which is really crazy. Or if it gets stuck and it's stuck in some kind of tangled weeds or something, it can't back out. It keeps trying to go forward. How many of y'all have ever been stubborn like that, by the way? You're hitting a wall, and you keep hitting the same wall over and over and over again. Another way that sheep get lost and that people get lost, and I'm just going to be blunt. Can I be candid with you since we're not legalistic? Amen. But sheep get lost and people get lost because of plain stupidity. Just not being smart. 
Sheep are not the brightest animals in the world. This is a fact. My little dog, Rue, is like ten times smarter than any lamb. And you see, because of our sinfulness and mankind's helpless condition, this is what God says. Everyone is lost. Everyone is in darkness. John chapter 1 says Jesus came as a light into a world of darkness. And in John chapter 3, it says that we're so used to the darkness that men love the darkness rather than the light. That's John chapter 3. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world who's come to help people in their helpless condition. When you are born with a sinful condition, you can't fix it yourself. No self-help book can fix it. No religion can fix it. No formula can fix it. Nothing can fix our condition. We are helpless And that's what makes God's love so extraordinary. Because despite that, that's exactly what Jesus comes to do, is to help helpless people. And you know what Jesus is saying? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the problem with the Pharisees is that they cannot admit, they cannot admit that they are helpless. Pharisees, legalistic people, cannot admit that they need God. And do you know what? There's a new kind of Pharisaism in our culture. It's a secular Pharisaism. It's a secular legalism because secular people say, I don't need God. I don't need help. I'm liberated. I'm fine. I can do it myself. I can define my life as I want. And they get more and more trapped in the ditches. They get more and more lost in their condition. The key, Jesus is saying, is not fixing yourself. The key is admitting you need help. This is the key. They say, well, I thought the Christian message was good news. It is good news. That's the second part is that the Christian message is Jesus' pursuit. Jesus is willing to spend everything for the joy of restoring human beings to God. He says it there in verses 4 and 5. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Jesus' pursuit is a white-hot commitment, a costly pursuit, a willingness to spend everything, to extravagantly, graciously, lovingly, Pursue stubborn, sometimes stupid, sometimes abused sheep. Jesus is willing to pursue these tax collectors and these sinners. And they can sense it. They sense this in him. It's interesting because when I've studied the background of this parable, what I've realized is that this shepherd that he's talking about is a poor shepherd. That's very important. He's only got 100 sheep. Now, a large herd was 300. An average herd was 200. But, like, very small herd is 100. This is not a a rich shepherd. Not only that, but typically a shepherd, if he had any means at all, he'd have a guard who would guard the the outside of of, of of the herd of sheep. And if one of them got away, then the guard would be the one who would go and find the sheep. Jesus says, he's telling us a story about a shepherd who's so poor that he has to do all the work himself. 
It's a great picture of the gospel because what the gospel is, is it's ultimately about Jesus who is the eternal son of God who, who uh, says in John 17 that before he came to earth, he shared in the glory of the Father in heaven. He has no beginning and no end. And Jesus came down. He became a human being. A human being didn't become God. God became a human being. And why would God become a human being? Well, it certainly wasn't for a vacation. I mean, earth is beautiful and all that, but I doubt it's nothing compared to heaven. The reason why God became a human being was to seek and to save the lost, to restore human beings to himself. And the Bible says that Jesus became poor to make many rich, that Jesus spent everything. Not only is he the shepherd who comes to his sheep and saves them, but he spends everything to reach us. He gives us lavishly all of his love and all of his life all the way up to the cross. He comes to us in our darkness and in our night and in our confusion and in our our hurt. He comes to us in our broken relationships. He comes to us in our abuse. He comes to us in our, in our dumb mistakes. He comes to us in all of that. He comes to us in the night, in the darkness. You see, that's the other thing. Jesus' pursuit is light in the darkness. You don't count sheep at the beginning of the day. You count it at the end of the day. And there he is. There's the shepherd. He counts all his sheep before he goes to bed. Even children know you count sheep before you go to bed. And he counts all of his sheep. And he's missing one. He's worked all day. He's worked all day. He's sweated, he's labored, he's all over the place. And what does he do? He finds out there's one missing. Now I can't go to bed. Now I can't get rest. So he has to take a lamp and he's got to go out into the darkness at the risk of bandits. And who knows what else is out there in that countryside out there in the Middle East. And there he goes. He goes out to find the sheep at night because Jesus is willing to go into the night. He is the light of the world. Do you sense that God is pursuing you? Do you sense that God has pursued you? Do you know that he did this? And do you know that he did it not because we're so valuable, but because he is so loving? Do you know that he does this because, not because we're lovable? He doesn't do it for, oh, that person is really special, so I'm going to go after them. No, he does it to demonstrate God's grace and glory. None of us are worthy of that kind of pursuit. Not from Jesus. <laughs> That's the gospel. The gospel is not only mankind's helpless condition, but the gospel is the good news of Jesus' pursuit. And finally, the gospel is rejoicing. It's good news, and it's a celebration. The message of Christianity should lead to a celebration. It says here in verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and he rejoices. He's rejoicing. Now think about it. Would you do that? This is why I'm not Jesus and Jesus is Jesus, right? Because if I've worked all day and one of my sheep goes astray and i got to leave in the middle of the night and go find that sucker. You know what I mean? I might put him on my shoulders, but I might be cursing the whole time. No, I wouldn't curse. I'm a pastor, right? Amen. Anyways. <laughs> Stupid. Come here. Put it on my shoulders. I'm going to take you home. Rub your nose in it so you'll never do it again. 
you over here? See, a lot of people, they, they, they think of Christianity. Yeah, I get it. They get it. I mean, nobody in our culture is going to look at Christianity and go, oh, no, I, don't, I didn't know that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I didn't know that Jesus came to save people. But you see, what people do is they put the Christian message in a minor key. They put it in a key of, yeah, God's coming to you, you stupid dadgum sheep. Let me take you, put you, I'm going to get you in the church. I'm going to get you to shut up and grow up and mature up and build up. We're going to get serious around here. We're going to get serious about this religious thing. We're going to get serious about this spiritual thing. Dumb, dumb, dumb. See, that would be me if I built my religion, right? (laughs) But Jesus is not like that. Jesus comes, and when he finds it, he's like, I found you. (laughs) This is great. Let Let me get you. Let me get you. Okay, hang on now. Are you hurt? Are you hurt? A little hurt. I'm going to be gender. I'm so glad I found it. And he goes home and he's happy. He's so happy that he calls all of his neighbors and his friends and he says, let's throw a party. Let's rejoice. Let's, let's get this thing on, man. Let, let's make a loud noise. It's interesting. It's a contrast, isn't it? There's the Pharisees grumbling and complaining and these people. And Jesus says, heaven's not like that. Heaven's a party. Heaven rejoices at the repentance, at the, at the return of the lost sheep. Heaven rejoices at the return of the lost coin. Heaven rejoices at the return of the lost son. Heaven. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. Yeah. Cross point. Joy is the serious business of our mission. Rejoice with me, Jesus says, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Jesus goes as far in verse 7, and he's talking. He looks up at the Pharisees after he tells this story, and he says, I'll tell you, boys, something, you self-righteous people. I'll tell you something. Heaven's more excited about a wicked, Wicked sinner coming home to God after all of their debauchery than he is over you 99 who never need to repent. Heaven likes sinners better than you. God likes sinners better than you. Four applications based on This message and mission of Jesus. You see the gospel, right? Mankind's helpless condition. Jesus' pursuit. Thirdly, heaven's rejoicing. There's the Christian message and gospel. The first application for you is to embrace the prodigal God. Embrace the prodigal God. That's what this series is about and what Luke 15 is about. Timothy Keller is helpful on this. He wrote a book called The Prodigal God. And he, de- and he defined prodigal as recklessly extravagant or 
having spent everything. And prodigal was always a word that was attached to the lost son because the lost son, remember, he takes his inheritance and he goes and lives in wild living and he spends everything. And so we've always called him the prodigal son because he was reckless and because he spent everything. But the point of Luke 15 and the point of Jesus and the point of the gospel is that God will outspend our sin in his love and grace every time. That God can outspend us in changing us than we can in running from him. If you spend all of your money and your whole life and you extravagantly run from God, you still, if God should choose, if God should choose, you cannot outspend God in your running from God than he can in choosing you. And you know what that means about God? It means he's the best, most valuable, most awesome person you will ever know. There is nobody better than God because he will spend more on you. He will invest more on you. He will love you better than anybody. He will, he will take you in with such passion. You've never been loved like you've been loved by God. God is the prodigal God. Embrace him as the prodigal God. I could give you verses upon verses. Therefore, I will. Ezekiel. This is Old Testament as well. It's not, it's not like a new God. It's not like a new God showed up in the New Testament. It's the God of the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search my sheep, and I will seek them out. He is seeking you out. He is seeking me out right now. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places, underline all, all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. It's a multicolored kingdom he's building from all countries he's gathering people. He goes on to say here in verse 15 and 16, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the straight, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Woo! That is an awesome God. And you say, well, what's his heart in doing it? Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 32, verse 41. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Have you ever understood God as loving you with all his heart and with all his soul? Have you understood that the moment that you became a believer... If you genuinely became a believer and received the Holy Spirit, do you know that God applied that salvation to you with all of his heart and all of his soul? You see, he's a prodigal God. Oftentimes, we run from him because we put him in our mind. We put God in a minor key, not a major key. We know what's said at church. We know the things that are preached at church. But we hear them wrongly. We don't hear them in this powerful, loving message. Embrace the prodigal God. Here's the second application. Define legalism. What we've got to do as a church and as followers of Christ, we've got to watch ourselves 
myself included, from becoming legalistic. And we can't become Pharisees, see? Jesus is telling his disciples, you cannot become like these guys. This is deadly and poisonous, and it destroys the mission. And so here's a good definition of legalism. Legalism, number one, is treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power in order to earn God's favor. Now, i got to tell you something. A lot of churches in our country now, whether contemporary or traditional, many churches in one way or the other are very legalistic. Because the way that they approach getting into the kingdom of God is following rules. They actually think that there is a formula and a set of rules that human beings can follow which will make them right for God's holy kingdom. This is the Pharisees. The Pharisees were separatists. They said, we got to stay away from the world. We can't touch it or we'll be defiled. We can't be around it or we'll be defiled. We can't have dinner with it or we'll get defiled. we got to follow our rules, keep ourselves pure, hold it in, and then maybe we'll make it into heaven. Beloved, there's one way to heaven, and believe me, it's not something you can do. It's something Christ does in you. We can't go up to heaven. Heaven comes down to us or else we're done. And you say, well, Christ hasn't come to me. Well, ask him to come to you because until he comes to you, you will not go to heaven. People say, I haven't found God yet. You're never going to find God. God's not lost. God has to find us. And legalism actually makes it appear that we can work our way up. That there's a system, a self-help, holy program. Legalism is treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power and order during God's favor. But here's the second, even more insidious problem with legalism. It is the erecting of specific requirements of conduct beyond the teaching of Scripture and making adherence to them the means by which a person is qualified for full participation in God's church. Pharisees had 200 extra positive laws to the law of God, and they had 300 extra prohibitions that they added to the Bible. So not only did they say you've got to follow the rules of God as revealed by Moses, but you've got to create rules to keep the rules. And what this what churches do this all the time, true or false, churches do this all the time. You can put it in charters and covenants, you know what I mean? You cannot become a member of this church unless you stop drinking, chewing, and girls who are doing. You know what I mean? Like, come up with all these rules. You gotta dress a certain way. You gotta, you gotta wear the right colors. You gotta look holy enough. You gotta, you, gotta, you gotta put together enough. Or you can't wear makeup. Praise God, we can wear makeup, can't we? With ladies, not guys. <laughs> but guys, I guess you could too. I mean, you know what I mean? I'm gonna get an email on that. All right. I don't know what to say. This is what happens. I love Pharisees because they're so creative with this. You know, one of my favorite extra rules that Pharisees come up with, one of my favorite, they say, okay, the Ten Commandments says you've got to keep the Sabbath holy. Good law, good rule, great thing, wonderful. 
They say, but we got to make sure that we're going to keep the Sabbath holy and not work on the, on the Sabbath. This is one of the Ten Commandments. So let's create a rule to make sure we keep the rule. So they come up with all these rules to keep the Sabbath holy and make sure they're not doing work. And one of my favorite rules that they add to Scripture is don't spit into dirt. I'm not even joking. This is one of them. Because they said the reasoning was if you spit into dirt on the Sabbath, the dirt and the spittle will create mud. Thus you've created something. Thus you've worked and you've sinned. Do you see how ridiculous this can be? There are all kinds of ridiculous churches. In particular, since we've been here to Central Illinois, there's all kinds of crazy t- stuff going on off in here with legalism. And what we've got to do is remind ourselves it is by grace alone that we are saved. Grace alone we're changed and transformed. That our life of restoration and transformation doesn't come in white-knuckling it. It comes in the life of God encountering our heart, an immediate communication. He makes us new people, and he gives us room and grace to slowly grow and progress and mature as the men and women he wants us to be. Define legalism. We'll look at that closer when we get to the older brother in the lost son parable. All right. Number three, remember this, that the Christian message, a key to the Christian message is repentance. You see it here in verse 7, and it often gets forgotten, and I don't want us to forget it. There's so much love and grace and tracking down, and it says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, repentance for Jesus is a turning from sin to embrace Christ. All right, that's what repentance means. But in this parable, different people need to hear the message of repentance differently, depending on where you're at. If we are more legalistic and more pharisaical, then we have to hear repentance as a rebuke. Like, you think you're good because you go to church all the time. You think you're good because you tithe. You think you're good because you have a prayer time. You think you're good because you don't do all the bad things other people do. You think you're good because you compare yourself to other people and get self-righteous. And Jesus is telling us legalistic people to repent. It's a rebuke. You must repent. You must turn from your own sin, from your own arrogance and pride And remember, it's by grace alone through Christ. But you see, there are some people who aren't like that. They're hurt, and they're insecure, and they're not comfortable in their own skins, and they're broken, and they're abused, and and they know that they're far from God, and they know they've jacked it up, and they, they know all of this. They can't hear repentance as a rebuke, but as an encouragement. See, it depends on where you're at and how you hear God. It's kind of like the difference in Isaiah's call and Jeremiah's call in the Old Testament. Isaiah was a a proud religious man, didn't like his society. He was always preaching those sermons. Woe is you, you nation of sinners. Woe is you for turning from God. And in Isaiah 6, he, he encounters the holiness of God, and he's broken, and he's undone. And he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And he's all broken, and God's like, yeah, that's right, Mr. Self-righteous guy. That's right. You remember that story? It's a great story. But then there's Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he's so, he's so insecure. He's so, I mean, Jeremiah can barely get through the day with having one positive thought about himself. And he's just like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'm right. I just don't know. You know what I mean? 
And the same God who calls Isaiah into ministry comes to Jeremiah and calls him into ministry. And God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I love you. I knew you before you were in your mother's womb. And I'm going to give you the words to say. See, it depends on who you are. When you hear the word repentance in this context, and if you're broken and you know it, you have to hear it in grace. And the picture of repentance, for those who need encouragement, is repentance is Jesus coming, picking up the lost sheep. Remember that? Puts him on his shoulders and turns him around himself and takes him where he needs to go. You see that? That's what repentance is. Repentance is Jesus aggressively reaching us where we're at in our sin, picking us up and himself turning us and carrying us where we need to go. That's the picture. All of us dads, if you're a dad of a small child, you know what this is. Okay? Because, you know, it, it, this happened just last night because I was working on this very sermon. Right? Angels were coming and communicating to me directly in my room. I was levitating off the ground. It was a holy moment. And my youngest daughter comes down to me. You know, it's one of those things you're working and you're praying and you're fasting and you're in spirit. And the next thing you know, you're like, oh, there's a little one. You know what I mean? And I turned and there she was. And she looked up at and she said, I don't want to sleep in my bed tonight. And I said, well, sweetheart, here's the deal. God gave you that bed and God gave you that room. All right. And Abby's in her bed. Ashley's in her bed. Allison's in her bed. Mommy's in her bed. I know that's where I want to be with mommy. I was like, okay, you're missing the point, sweetheart. You've got to go up to your bed. That's the bed God gave you tonight to sleep in, okay? She says, okay. She walks away. I think, man, I'm the best dad in the world. That was really smooth. Like, she totally obeyed me. So I work on my sermon some more. I pray in tongues. You know what I'm saying? I do my tongues thing. And then, then, I'm going to get an email for that too. Okay. And And then I come to my bed. And as I come to my bed, guess who's on my side of the bed? There she is. She's laying there, drool on the pillow. You know what I mean? She just, you know, there's little Rue, the dog, sleeping next to her, all tucked up. He's got, like, his legs open and his belly's over. You know, they're all like this. And poor Sherry's, like, over in a corner, like, trying to, trying to peek out a few hours of sleep, you know. And, and I look down at her. You know what I'm saying? And you're just like, good grief. So I wake her up. And I said, and this is what I was, I was like, Reach up, and she reaches up like, you know, she's still half asleep. And that's when I take her, I put her in my arms, turn her around, take her up the stairs, lay her where God meant for her to be, (laughs) cover her up, right, and give her a kiss. I didn't wake her up and say, you wicked sinner, you brood of vipers, what did I tell you, child? That's the picture of repentance that Jesus is giving to broken people. It really is. Pharisees need to hear it as a rebuke. Sinners need to hear it as an encouragement. Christ saying, I will do it. I will aggressively work repentance in you. All you got to do, just reach up. Just reach up. 
and I'll take you, and I'll do it. See, that is the Christian gospel. Embrace the prodigal God, define legalism, repentance, finally today, church. This tells us all about church. Great ecclesiology in Luke 15. Ecclesiology is the study of the church, and what you get is great ecclesiology. It's not comprehensive, it's not total, but it gives you some great ideas about the mission of the church. The first thing is is that we must be a church that seeks and saves and restores lost people to God where possible. Secondly, we must be a welcoming church of all people no matter where they are at. If we're not slightly uncomfortable by our audience, then I think we have a lot of work to do. We should have people who struggle with legalism going, why are they here? We must welcome people. All people. No matter who. The mission of Jesus is to spend everything for the joy of restoring human beings to God. That must be our mission. To spend everything in restoring human beings to God. Our mission is not primarily philanthropy. Our mission is not primarily politics. Our mission is not primarily God bless America. Our mission is to spend everything in restoring human beings to God. We must welcome then all people. We must proclaim the gospel clearly, the power of the preaching of the gospel must be believed in deeply. You must believe fervently that it matters when a Bible is open and when God's love and gospel is preached through the verses and chapters of the Bible. That makes a difference, that God's word does not return void. You should be animated by the proclamation of Jesus' grace and love and gospel. But finally, we must be a church that celebrates noisily, loudly, happily. We must be a happy, happy church. What is Sunday worship? It is the celebration of being found by God. That's all it is. It's a big celebration. Don't make it any more serious than that. Don't make it more intricate than that. No, man, we've got, we've got busy work to do. No, 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 no. It is Resurrection Sunday. This is the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And you and I, because we believe in him, we will live forever and ever with him. Every Sunday is Easter to us. And every Sunday is a memory and a moment to say, I'm grateful because I was lost, but now I've been found. 